Welcome to Season 4 of The Farcast, bringing you experts and insiders every week to help you navigate the economic and investing landscape. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to The Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week, June the 30th, last day of the quarter. Wow, we've made it halfway through 2021. doesn't feel like halfway through 2021 exactly. Uh, time in some ways has flown here. But boy, let's all hearken back to uh, January 1 when we were, at least in Florida, we were going on websites and trying to dial up and figure out how we were going to get scheduled for vaccines and we were still in shutdown and the economy wasn't really happy about the world and we had a conflict uh, about who actually had been elected the next president of the United States, though President Biden thought it was pretty, felt pretty sure it was, it was he who had been elected. And indeed, the country agreed that they went ahead and, and uh, uh, inaugurated uh, President Biden. And here we are six months later, and the world feels different. It looks different. And the stock market is making new all-time highs as the U.S. 10-year Treasury is falling in yield, rallying in price, 1.45% on the 10-year Treasury. Wow, that yield is falling while stock prices are rising. An economy is recovering. The Fed is starting to murmur hawkishly. I don't know what to make of it, which is why we go to Jim Urio from the floor of the Chicago Exchange. Hey, Jim, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Michael. What do you now? I just rattled off a whole bunch of stuff that's happened in the last six months and where we are now. What would you add to that? And what of that strikes you as most important? Well, OK, I'm going to start with something that's that's not very important, but it's never mentioned. You mentioned back to January and the, all the worries we had in January com compared to all the euphoria today. There's an enormous weather component to that as well. And we saw it kind of last summer, too. You know, when the restaurants are crowded, the people you know, we've seen good consumer confidence numbers come out. And I think part of that has to do, you know, everything is a little bit seasonal. I want to see how well we're doing end of November into December, January, particularly now they're throwing this the Delta variant, if it's if it's real or if it's just a ploy to get people vaccinated, I don't know. I have no opinion on that. But I like all the things you're saying. And I think the 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 one thing I worry about is in related to the stock market is this. We've rallied on the reopening trade. We've rallied on the Fed. We've rallied <laughs> on the government spending tons and tons of money. I'm not 100 percent certain what the next cat fundamental catalyst is going to be for the next rally, unless unless we can make the argument that we've underestimated to a small degree um, the the recovery and the demand and how robust uh, it's going to be coming out of this. And that, I think, is the one wild card. And we're going to, you know, today we're going to get the ADP number. On Friday, we're going to get the, uh, the NFP number. So we're going to see some important numbers in the next couple of days that are going to give us a limits test. NFP number is the non-farm payroll number that Jim's talking about, that employment number that's, that we watch very, very closely. You know, and I'm glad you mentioned the weather and the seasonal stuff because I spent all winter long in Florida where we don't have seasons, Jim. I forget that, you know, that it's <laughs> cold and people can't go outdoors. So I'm, I, I, now I've moved up to Delaware because it's too damn hot in Florida and it rains <laughs> like hell every afternoon. You get sick of that fast. So it's good to have options. Um, as as you know, as you mentioned that list, the I did this bank rate survey, uh, which I do every quarter. And one of the things that 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 they said and one of the things I said when I filled out my survey was I expected over the next 12 months 
that Europe would probably outperform U.S. in terms of stocks in the international sector only because they are behind us by several months in the reopening and in their economic activity surge and that they were going to get that benefit. But maybe there's a still a benefit for us there as Europe opens, as they see that economic strength that could create demand here. What do you think? Well, I, I like what you said about them. I, you know, I was just looking at you know, PEs and CAPE ratios uh, country to country yesterday, and we're obviously a lot more stretched than they are. So I like the notion of them outperforming. Um, but other than that, that's the only genuine thought I have. And I will mention something to you about our recent rally and some of the things I like about it. And, and this is going to be interesting because I read a piece that you wrote yesterday. You write very well, by the way. And if, pe if people out there haven't had a chance to read what my, although you were wrong on this, one, I'm going to get to that part though. You, in your Just once. Wrote, I was wrong just once. <laughs> just once. Just once. In the piece you wrote, you talked about how the NASDAQ resuming um, leadership again wasn't necessarily a positive thing and maybe right. negative. And your reasoning was that, you know, rates have gone lower. It's kind of almost like a bond trade, meaning if you know, it, it, when we see this, it's almost a flight to safety. Here's what I disagree with is that when, when the, we rallied the NASDAQ a year ago off the lows in March, it was really top heavy with the names with the best balance sheet, the work from home names, and it was definitely a safety trade. Here's what I think is different about the NASDAQ taking the lead right now, and I'm curious to see if you agree. It's not necessarily just Google and Apple and Amazon. As a matter of fact, those have not made new highs yet. It's a broader, it's a broader rally, plus the dollar is rallying at the same time to me means it's not a particular like, oh, the government's going to spend and the, the, the Fed's going to zero things out. We might as well hide our money somewhere. So I actually looked at the Nasdaq and thought that that was a positive thing for the domestic stock market. Any thoughts on that? Yes. And here's why I think you've interpreted me wrongly. Um, no, actually, I'm just being argumentative. I'm not sure you've got it wrong at all. Uh, you just you just start that way when you get into these conversations with, with other market guys. I got to tell you, ladies and gentlemen. So no, where, where I was going with that was um, when you see rates fall, uh, people discount those cash flows in a much more favorable way, much more favorable way for future expectations, which tends to get the NASDAQ rallying. And I think that a lot of this, this, this surge in the 10-year treasury and therefore these lower rates has been supporting that but the fall in the 10-year treasury is the thing that that is that is the wet blanket here why it, it's an it's an indicator of future expectations when you see those future rates fall so we're not seeing growth we're not seeing demand uh you know really there for people who are just saying i want a lot of money um uh out there in the future to expand and grow so it's not a huge, you know, it's, it's not a really bullish indicator. And that's 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 my concern. No, that and that makes sense to me, too. And I'll add a couple things to that. I was actually floored by how quickly the Nasdaq responded to when 10 year yields went up several months ago and how quickly it had that 8 percent drop. And conversely, how quickly it rallied when the rates seemed to stabilize. I will. And I love I'm a rate guy and a bond trader for right. you know, for 35 years. But I will say that and I do Look at the 10 year for all those reasons that you said. But I will add that, you know, the Fed is buying $80 billion a month. Um, the other central banks are buying their treasuries as well. And when, you know, I, I got in a discussion with Cullen Roach. He's a, I think he's a relatively talented economist, but he was talking about how, you know, the Fed is not really controlling these rates because they're bringing, to, you know, they're, they're just kind of crowding out demand from the private sector. I think when we see the Fed buying $80 billion, 
the private sector tends to go in and buy more bonds after that too. So it like has a, a multiplier effect more than like a stealing demand thing. But anyway, the point is, I'm rambling here, but the point is, I think you can look at the 10 year yield and the shape of the yield curve and, and take it with a slightly more of a grain of salt than normally because it's being kind of bullied by other pressures, meaning central banks. You know, I've seen this, I've seen this uh, switch that you saw in terms of how the NASDAQ bounced back and how uh, the response to rates. And I saw the rates up at 175, and then I've seen them now, of course, at 145 in just a couple of months. And, and it's happened so fast, Jim, that I, that I find myself saying, is that really it? What am I seeing? I mean, it's moving fast enough that I'm trying to figure it out, and I don't think that I have exactly the answer yet. You know, when you see something in the market and you sure. it's inexplicable and you try to pull the pieces together to coalesce some sort of an answer and, and it's not coming clearly. I think what you're saying makes sense, but I'm not sure. I mean, well, it's think about, think about when the when rates went higher months back, it happened to correspond with the exact time that everybody had piled in to the NASDAQ work from home trade, the safety trade. And the, the, the positions in that were huge because at the end of the day, I think market position, you know, the same news story can be interpreted wildly differently depending yes. on the positioning. So at yes. that time, it was interesting in that everybody was bulled up on the NASDAQ stocks. All of a sudden rates started to tick up and there was a little panic and heading to the exits and selling to get selling. And that's why we had that 8% correction. But now all of a sudden, the market like li market links those things together, rates and NASDAQ. And then that second time when rates go down and NASDAQ starts flying higher, it's just because we're kind of in the wake of that correlation that has been tied to it so hard by the market. Does that make any sense? I, th I think it does. We're getting a little bit down in the weeds, yeah. but w what we're seeing for sure here is cheap money. Uh, mm -hmm. Money is really cheap, and there's still a lot of demand for U.S. Treasuries, as you point out, and that demand is going to be coming still more internationally, even though the dollar is still relatively high. I mean, it's kind of a disconnect, and I don't understand. The other thing I don't understand, and you were right on this trade, by the way, oil above you know, $73 a barrel oil. Why in the hell is oil at $73 a barrel? You got the trade right. You tell me. No, well, the, my, the thesis of the trade, which has changed at the beginning of the year when I first started talking about oil, it was a reopening trade and it was the forgotten commodity trade. If you look at a 20-year you know, chart of oil and then you tease out the, the ridiculous negative period we had uh, around you know, last a year ago, April, um, it, you know, oil, 60 $65 is, is relatively normal what it is. Then you look at lumber, copper, things like that. Those were the ones that were absolutely stretched. So I had, I had crude as the forgotten commodity and crude as the one that was going to rally in the reopening. And then something else happened that helped the trade a lot, too, is they start uh, the present administration starts saber rattling against fossil fuels and uh, talking about regulation. And when they start to talk about the supply side of it, too, that helped the trade as well. And something that was interesting to me is at the beginning of the year, you know, I bought Exxon, I bought um, ConocoPhillips. I was thinking that they would track oil. So now the government comes in and they start talking about regulating those particular companies Oil goes higher and those companies follow oil higher, which to me is kind of ironic and almost idiotic that the very things that are going to be getting regulated were rallying alongside oil. But they did. and They probably still will. You know, you've seen that uh, you've seen, though, that lumber and copper have turned and a lot of the other commodities have turned. We've gone from 475 in copper down to 425. I mean, since May. I mean, wow. So uh, are you expecting a similar pullback in oil here? Where's your trade going forward? Well, I, I still I like oil up to about 78, which is only a couple of dollars. So I think it's tired, but I will add a couple of things to you. So just from the statistics part of it, I always argue that oil as a commodity 
itself is as or more important than every other commodity group together. And to, to prove that, you know, we import $140 billion, a billion um, dollars of oil per year. We only import $20 billion of lumber, which is number two on the list. We export $80 billion worth of crude. The next uh, um, article on that list is beans, which we is one fifth of that amount. So oil is obviously the biggest thing here. One thing I think is interesting is those other commodities getting pummeled, which began two weeks ago, in some ways may give the Fed a little bit of um, breathing room in their own mind that, okay, it, maybe there was some supply issues and why everything was getting out of hand the way it was. And at the same time, I don't think it's a big story that lumber and copper are cratering because I think crude is a bigger story that it's rallying. But the Fed might think it's a big story and, and let them be a little more dovish because of it. Okay, two final questions. We're out of time. Can't believe it. Uh, first of all, uh, through the end of the year, tell Fred and Ethel where you think the stock market's going to be. Well, here, here, here's what I think. And again, um, you know, I'll just tell you what I'm doing. I actually, my long-term portfolio uh, a week ago, I rebalanced some things. It, you know, it ran too high and it was too much. From risk. what to what? I'm, out of equities? From, uh, out of equities into whatever, you know, what, there was nothing else to buy right now. So I guess because that was your discipline, was, right? Because that was because your that discipline. that was my discipline. When okay. I get to a certain amount of percentage of stocks to bonds, uh, I it was too too top heavy, and if all of a sudden the correction comes within the, the big correction comes within the next couple of weeks, I'm ready for it. Now, in the short term, both the Nasdaq and the S and P are sitting at all time highs. The charts look fabulous to me. I am still in my trading accounts. I'm still long, but I'm long using cheap volatility and the options to limit my risk. Um, so I, I am still fine with this market. And I again, I don't think that that is contradictory at all to in your long term, just your your discipline of of uh, rebalancing. And at the same time, trading account being bullish. So that's what I am right now. Uh, and I think very good advice. And you hear somebody like Jim Muriel, who's as close to the markets as anybody you're ever going to talk to, has as much experience as anybody you're ever going to talk to. And he gets as many hunches about stuff as anybody you're ever going to talk to. And what does he do? And what does FAR do? And what does everybody we talk to on the Farcast do? They follow their discipline because your discipline will keep you out of the trouble that your emotional hunches will get you into. Am I right, amen. Jim? Oh, amen. We say down here in the trading floor, we say bulls can make money, bears can make money, pigs get slaughtered. Meaning if you get too greedy and people tend to get too greedy on the upside, that's when you, you, know, you stick your chin up and put, make it uh, you know, prime target for a punch. Hey, I got a note from our listener, Doug, who went, who went to Brant's and said it he, is the best burger in the <laughs> world. He, my wife was there. My wife met him and said Doug was a really good guy. Tell Doug we said thank you. There we go. Yeah. I mean, you go to Brant's, and, uh, <laughs> you know, of Palantine, when you're out in Chicago, I'm telling you, you'll see the Urio family, which is worth the trip in and of itself, and the best burger in the world. How does it get better than that? Jim Urio uh, is a uh, principal at TJM Securities in Chicago. I've been on the trading floor of the CME since 1987. Jim, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Michael. Talk soon. We'll be back, ladies and gentlemen, with Dan Mahaffey from the Center of the Study of the Presidency and Congress. And then after that, Mark Hamrick from Bankrate, the uh, publisher of the Bankrate survey. It's a fascinating survey this quarter. We're going to get into it and really peel back behind the numbers when we come back on the Farcast. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. 
Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Hero's work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Hero's mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast, and now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Joining me now, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress and the senior political analyst on the Farcast as we come here to the end of season four of the Farcast in the next month or so. Uh, today is June the 30th, end of the second quarter. 2021 is half over, folks. Can you believe it? What a ride it's been for President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, even our folks in Congress and Speaker Pelosi and our unhappy Republican friends like Mitch McConnell and the unhappiest of all, perhaps former President Donald Trump. It hasn't gotten all that quiet finding out about lawsuits in New York. Uh, it looks like it looks like they're going to bring some serious lawsuits against the Trump organization. How much of a distraction will that be? Do you get a Donald Trump? Uh, Dan Mahaffey, I've been reading this and thinking about this. Do you get enough negativity around Donald Trump and the Trump organization stories that Republicans ultimately decide to move on? Oh, well, that's, a, that's the million-dollar question for the future of the Republican Party. But a lot, a lot of people are moving on. And, and as long as you see the, the media infrastructure staying, staying with them, the, the Fox News, those, those opinion makers, sure, uh, he, he continues to have a voice and he continues, you know, the, the true litmus test, I think, will be let's start to see how some of these 2022 primaries shake out, because that's when we'll know what his staying power is at the ballot box. I read an interesting stat, Dan, uh, this morning that said that half of the Republican Party uh, polled still believe that um, uh, Joe Biden's election as president was illegitimate. Now, half right, of the Republican Party, 50 percent, believe that six months into President Biden's uh, first term as president. I mean, that just struck me as a remarkable number. Fifty percent. That's 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 not a small number. No, no, certainly not. And, and what we've seen is how, how strong that's holding within the Republicans themselves. But how much that discussion continues to turn off independents, moderates. Uh, you know, it's funny here in Virginia, we see the we already have ads for the, the governor's race. Uh, and Youngkin, the Republican candidate, has an ad. You don't even see him saying he's Republican on it. And he actually starts the ad with a conversation with folks where he says, look, we don't start conversations asking who's from what political party around here. So that's that's just kind of a funny ad to see where you know, look at a state like Virginia, you know, purple to blue, where the, the Republican is running as far away from being a Republican as he can be in the uh, in the northern Virginia airwaves. And what do you make of that? Why is it? Why is he doing that? Well, I think he, it's a it's a needle that they have to thread where you have to live in a world where Joe Biden lost the election, where everything is rigged to win the primary. But then that doesn't resonate 
in the in the real world where uh, outside, you know, that that base of support, that 30 percent to 35 support. 35% support for Trump that the other 60% largely find him, you know, wish he would just, uh, you know, work on his memoirs in Mar-a-Lago. So uh, a, a, you're saying that that uh, in Northern Virginia anyway, there are enough moderates and centrists that uh, a successful candidate has to appeal to that center. Exactly. Look at the look at. Wouldn't that be nice that we could see that happen around the country where politicians would have to actually appear, appeal to the center? Oh, that I would mean, be lovely. Oh my God, these and common ex- sense and things oh, like that. Oh yeah, that that's just so. And that's and our Fourth really? of July wish. If you go to bed and, yes. and think patriotic thoughts, George Washington will wake up in the morning and and bring you centrist politicians, right? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Centrist yeah, politicians who were concerned about you know getting the right things centrally done for the government, as opposed to uh, uh, these uh, polarizing sort of extremes that leave each side squared off against the other and making very little progress for a country that needs to make progress. Dan, well, I think that's uh, a, a good segue to Joe Biden, actually, because look, tell it, me, it, love him or hate him. He said something today that I think we, it leads us into his what we're going to talk about, the infrastructure negotiations. He said a democracy requires consensus. It's not going to get, not every side is going to get everything that they want. And this was him speaking about the, the deal proposals that are coming down the pike, but that you, the, the deal has to be made because a democracy only works when you reach consensus, not my way or the highway. Uh, that's really, in, that, that, that is interesting. It's, um, uh, it's what I've heard from some of my most favorite members of Congress over the years, that they yes. are there to hash things out and the sausage that they make is actually pretty good sausage because of the hashing out of it. Right. Um, and, and so that, that, that's, that's, that's uh, Bob Corker used to say that all the time. Uh, yes. And I'm a great fan of Senator, former Senator Corker's. All right. Uh, this infrastructure bill, the, the president kind of stepped uh, uh, um, mm. um, um, on his own foot, tripped over his own feet there. Uh, what do you make of where we are with infrastructure right now? What's it going to take? You've always said, Dan, and I'm going to give you some credit. It looks like end of the summer, September anyway, before this actually gets done. You still feel that way? I'm still feeling that way. And I think over the weekend, you saw the president uh, trip over his left foot, put his left foot in his mouth in the way I guess you'd say, because look, he was trying to calm down progressives who are concerned that this process is going to go ahead and they're going to be left without the things like uh, green energy priorities or family care, stuff that would go in the reconciliation bill. Uh, so of course, then that the, you know, the, the perception that there was a veto threat, he went back, calmed this down with the Republicans. Look, he said things again, like this is the deal. Uh, very importantly, he's noted that, you know, if we're going to pay for something in the deal, that doesn't mean you double dip again when you go back to reconciliation. Uh, I think that also reflects something that, you know, the ethos of Manchin and other moderates in the Senate on this, that look, if, if we've got bridge and road money in the bipartisan deal, that doesn't mean you go add more in the- This sounds uh, like a Democrats reasonable, only. this sounds like a fairly reasonable, moderate sort of a response from the president. I mean, if you, uh, the, a, a second reconciliation bill in the year, uh, folks, is not reasonable according to most parliamentarians who follow the rules here and how things actually get done in the Senate. That's really kind of pushing it in the extreme. But uh, that they're going to do it anyway and that they're going to be somewhat 
uh, I guess, middle of the road in their approach, Dan, about how they're going to uh, include or not include, that, 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 that actually seems a little encouraging. Are you encouraged? I'm encouraged. And also, look, don't, don't be sanguine entirely about the reconciliation bill. There will be measures in there that Republicans won't like. That's the, the, the way they get to move things through to there. But at least where we're seeing the deal. And look, let's acknowledge that there are uh, headwinds for the deal. There's uh, It hasn't had its CBO score yet, so we don't know about the, the actual pay-fors. Uh, continuing to count, do you, do you keep 10 Republicans on board in the Senate with this? Uh, and then also, where does this thread through in the House? Because uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, does want to pair this up. She has to keep uh, her narrow majority on board with progressives and moderates. Uh, and then I think, you know, that uh, ultimately opens the question as we get towards the end of the year, what are the uh, pay-fors on this? And, you know, as we've talked here quite a bit on the on the revenue questions, uh, that ultimately goes to the to what the House wants to do, and that's uh, that's House Ways and Means. That's uh, that's Neil, a Democrat. Again, they're holding their cards close to their chest on this, um, and I think that's because you know the the question is what is this price tag going to be, and we're seeing ultimate discussions of the price tag. We've got the Senate deal about one point two trillion. Mansion is kind of a, yeah. This a is really making my teeth hurt, Dan. All of this back and forth about it's a trillion, it's a trillion too. I'm giving you this, I'm giving you that, and then they do absolutely jack diddly. You thought I was going to say something else, didn't you? Jack diddly, and 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 it's still going to be September, and we don't have any damned idea. And they're all off on vacation now for the summer anyway. I, the, 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 I'm sorry, Washington makes me crazy. But what you're saying is we're going to get this infrastructure bill coming up in the fall, and. What you and I were talking about just before we went on air here is that you, you're not all that uh, uh, optimistic about actually tax increases happening this year. I'm, I'm, an, I'm not all that optimistic, and I think the, the Democrats are going to hold to their, you know, no increases for anyone uh, incomes below 400,000. Again, could be half a million if you round it to make a, a prettier number. But again, the, the Ways and Means is saying they're going to wait and see what the price tag is before they start to adjust the pay for. So they want to see, you know, let's see the price tag before we then start going into the various accounts to pay for this. And that's, uh, you know, that's going to be even a longer process as we go into budgeting, looking at the rest of the federal budget, right, that, that process. So again, that gets stretched out into later into the year. I'm, I'm not confident about any major uh, tax measures coming through this round, uh, particularly for anyone making less than 400000 a year. We're running out of time here. This is fascinating, Dan, and I always learn so much. I read, uh, I saw that the court had rejected the big antitrust things against some of the big tech companies, Facebook in particular. And now I read this morning in the Wall Street Journal that the Biden administration is pushing its very pro-regulator uh, sort of cabinet heads to go out and really curtail a lot of big business through increased regulation. And mm -hmm. whenever I, as an investor, hear increased regulation, I cringe because I know that's just expense. That's going to cost. Mm -hmm. You're adding to cost when you add to regulations. So uh, we're running out of time. Tell me what they're doing and how, how this uh, becomes effective on top of the, all the other agendas they're going to try and get through. 
Well, I think they're really looking at what they can do with their regulatory agenda to areas where they've seen, in their words, a lot of consolidation. Airlines is one that comes to mind where you see uh, various uh, tie-ups and code-sharing deals. You know, I think they would go right. after that. Uh, but what we're also seeing is, let's not forget how the Trump administration remade the courts. Uh, more conservative, more business friendly in many ways, more deregulatory in their jurisprudence framework. You're going to have bad news for some of these companies on the regulatory side. But does this do the administration's actions stand up in court is the next question. So you're saying that the regulators can come on full force. They can make things uh, appear like they're going to get miserable, but they won't get through the conservative courts that uh, they've inherited from President Trump. Yeah, I think you're right? going to yeah, you're going to see that trend and then what gets weird though is the pressure is going to then be on Congress to act on antitrust and those things but then you know as we've discussed it's just like a barrel of monkeys to get them to you know they agree on what they don't like from these companies but you can't get agreement on a path forward on dealing with it. You know, coming up here, Dan, towards the end of the summer, too, they've still got to figure out how they're going to fund the government going forward. That still has to pass, still have to uh, uh, sort that out as we come into the fall. Let's talk about that next week, will you? Can we Sounds talk good. about the yes. process about how they're going to keep government funded? And will that political wrangling in any way enhance or impair what's going on with the infrastructure agenda and so forth? Uh, can we do that? Sounds good. Coming up, Mark Hamrick from Bankrate.com, one of our favorite guys on the Farcast. Thank you to Dan Mahaffey. Ladies and gentlemen, please stay with us and share us on your social media. We really appreciate it a lot. I'll be right back. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Joining us now, one of our great friends on the far cast and one of michael farr's great friends for oh hell i don't know it's probably 25 years anyway mark how long something like that yeah sounds good to me michael it's uh, basically since we were five years old since yes since uh, we were both in short pants which ladies and gentlemen <laughs> was a long time ago anyway mark hamrick uh, has had a storied career very impressive covering the financial markets now uh running bankrate.com uh bankrate of course uh, is is one of the leading voices and 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 actually producers of of really good information and data for all of the financial market participants and analysts and portfolio managers just out with a new survey. So very welcome, welcome back, Mark. Michael, uh, it's always a great pleasure to be with you and to have known you over these many years. I thank you very much for the opportunity to connect with you here. Well, this is this is this is fun. I've been on Mark's shows. Mark comes on my shows, and and it, and it's great. Uh, so, Mark, uh, Bankrate just came out with the with your uh, survey for the second quarter, uh, and uh, it looks like uh, your group um, of uh, market mavens, in which I am humbly included, say the market's going to go higher, and and they have market. Uh, they've got information on what they think about interest rates. What uh, give us the highlights from that survey, would you? And then I want to ask you what you saw that you didn't expect to see. 
Sure, Michael. Well, first of all, thank you for your participation and your friendship and the opportunity to work with you over these many years, uh, as you say, basically going back to the early 1990s. So, you know, I look in the mirror in the morning and and, uh, wonder, uh, you know, how I got from there to here. And the reality is that I've been blessed to work with you and and to continue to do this work. It's all me, Mark, really. It's all me. (laughs) You know, I've, I've thought so for years, but I appreciate your recognition. That. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, but you know, in all, in all truthfulness, uh, Michael, which is consistent with what I just said, um, the opportunity to work at Bankrate and and to try to cut through what maybe some people view as complicated, yes, uh, meaning the performance and outlooks for financial markets and the economy. Um, you know, this is stuff that matters because you know our bank rate surveys traditionally, as you know, have found that the failure to save for emergencies and for retirement ends up being the number one financial regret. And so, um, to to have some degree of faith in markets for the longer term is really important. And I think one of the things that is a takeaway from this survey, and and you help to underscore that is that you know the outlook for the next year while obviously facing some challenges you know as we may be sort of experiencing peak growth right now in the US economy maybe the global economy has yet to get to that point uh, means that there is tremendous opportunity uh, over the horizon. And so taken together, as we look at uh, the breadth of those who weighed in with their opinions in our survey, basically looking for a 9% gain for the S&P 500 over the coming year. And that's pretty consistent with what we had seen in the previous survey in, in uh, the first quarter. And obviously, across the breadth of the participants, uh, there were wide divergences in that. Uh, and just to put that in a little bit of perspective, you know, obviously the last five quarters, you think about the depths of the pandemic where markets were reeling and then coming back and where we are today. Um, in the first quarter, the first three months of the year, the outlook was for a gain of eight and a half percent over the coming 12 months. Basically the same in the in the fourth quarter of last year. It's pretty similar in the third quarter of last year. But, you know, quarter two of 2020, in other words, basically a year ago, people were looking for a less than 1% return in the market over the coming 12 months. So obviously a lot has happened between what uh, Congress and presidents have signed in the sense of uh, economic stimulus and relief. Federal Reserve obviously still very much on the case here with record yeah. low interest rates. And so I, I just think that it's a it's a fairly uh, confident outlook while acknowledging there are some risks, as is always the case. You know, uh, too, Mark, we Jim Urio and I were talking in our first segment about really what a remarkable six months we've had. Uh, look, S and P five hundred is up fifteen percent in the first half of twenty twenty one, and half of twenty twenty one is now over. I mean. Isn't that stunning? And when you go back to where we were in January and in Florida, we were going on the Internet sites every day trying to figure out how we could sign up to get the vaccine. Everything was still shut down. And when you talk to people during looking in those environments and and with all the data around them, the reopening, we saw it coming. We thought it would happen, but yet it was one of those things that was more faith-based than data-based in those moments. And now it's coming to pass. And we look forward now and say, all right, I'm now looking at a 15% half a year. What's reasonable historically to get me to December? And I've got to come up with a reasonable number, even if it's over the next 12 months 
you know, uh, from these levels, it's hard when you're looking at all-time highs to think that you could, that you could eke out more than 10% based on a lot of experience. Does it strike you that way? I mean, I, I gave you a very cautious answer, you know, that with the reopening, with the earnings coming on, and with all the cash that's hitting this market, it really is hard to paint a bearish scenario. How many of your uh, survey participants saw a negative return, thought that we would be down over the next 12 months? I don't believe that any did, Michael. Uh, really? So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, none. Huh? Yeah, none. Yeah, exactly. And, and well, so, then it's going to crash, isn't it, Mark? That means it's definitely going down. Well, let me quote the great Michael Farr when oh, I right. asked the question here, what's the one thing investors need to know right now? You did say, you said the rule is buy low and complacency is a huge risk. Yes, so obviously, and you know, no one who's reasonable, if we can find anyone else in the world who, who fit those qualifications these days. Other than you and I, yeah. Exactly, and Harry, our good friend who works with you and us. Harry's iffy, depends on the day, really. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, don't ask our wives about our own uh, situations, but that's another question. No, 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 but no. Michael, uh, no one could argue with what you had to say there, right? And so you said, stick to your long-term asset allocation. And so I yes. do think this is a good time for faith, uh, because the current situation, the experience over the past five to six quarters is like nothing we've ever experienced before, right? And and yes. so you have to say that even though history in some ways provided us no foundation for what we recently experienced, we have to think that ultimately there is some resetting to norms and historical patterns, but but that doesn't mean that the next six months will, right? But but over time, maybe it will. Right, and 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 you know, in the markets, you have to remember that you're always vulnerable. Jim Urio said uh, that a week ago or so, he rebalanced his personal portfolio because equities had just gotten to be too large a portion. And one of the things that we said that I think is very important for listeners, Fred and Ethel, please listen to me right now. Uh, <laughs> It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what your hunches are. I, it makes me crazy when I sit with clients or prospective clients and they'll say something like, look, Michael, you know that oil is going to stay well above $70 a barrel through the end of the year. Michael, look, you know that interest rates are going to stay at one and a half percent for the next year. Michael, look, you know, whenever they start in on you know, they've just read an article in the Wall Street Journal, and these are bright people, and they found something that makes sense to them, and they'll latch onto it and say, Michael, you know, the, and the, the looks on their faces, Mark, when I go back to them and say, um, I understand what you're saying, and I understand why it's uh, reasonably logical, but let's be really clear. I do not know, and nor do you know, and in fact, uh, interest rates could be a lot higher, so could oil, or it could be a lot lower, and this market could correct 20% in the next three weeks. It could. We've seen it. And don't think it can happen. Going back, Mark, to complacency. Was that much of a risk on your survey? Uh, I didn't I didn't get a lot of people uh, weighing in with that. And that's consistent with the piece where they're basically saying, listen, we could have a 9% gain for the S&P 500 over the next year, even given what we've seen you know, to date. But, you know, when I'm going to sort of go back to my historical um, grounding as a journalist here, I'll stick with quotations as a theme here, whereas at the last Federal Reserve News Conference, 
Chairman Jerome Powell talked about the need for humility and forecasting and, you know, central bank chiefs probably uh, would be good to remind themselves of that on an ongoing basis. And my, my point about that is that there just is so much about the outlook that we do not know, including those of us who you know are keenly interested in what the Federal Reserve is going to be doing, because you know you look at that forecast that the FOMC participants uh, provide with respect to interest rates, and they continue to basically draw forward ever so slightly the outlook for the removal of accommodation, which is a fancy cocktail party uh, expression for uh, raising interest rates and, and uh, fewer asset purchases uh, over time. And so I, my sense is, is that that is, you know, increasingly a greater risk when you see, you know, 20% increases in home prices in a single year with the Fed. Thank you very much buying a mortgage-backed securities. Uh, that, uh, you know, at some point, I think there has to be an observation that this isn't normal. And one of the things that could be contributing to that lack of uh, normality is, is central bank involvement itself. I also read this morning, Mark, that, uh, Mortgage demand of down seven percent, um, and and uh, so despite this rally in uh, in the ten year, which means lower rates, folks. So uh, even uh, money's really cheap. Money's really cheap right now. So um, if you see cheap money like this, that typically starts uh, sparks a little more demand. You 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 think we're we're getting to a little bit of uh, exhaustion here in the home buying market? Well, I mean, what is it? Four straight months now of declines in existing homes. Is that an inventory problem or a demand problem? Probably a little of both, Michael. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, the National Association of Realtors is screaming about inventory uh, for as long as I can remember, which now is at least a week. Uh, no, I mean, you know, they, they, they've been they've been talking about this for a year or two at least. And, and you know, I mean, we all, whether we're in the Washington, D.C. area or other areas of the country, all you have to do is walk outside your house or go to the neighborhood coffee shop and there's somebody talking about what either happened with their house or a friend's house having been, you know, sold at a 10 percent premium over asking price. And that doesn't mean that all that is going to end badly, but it also probably indicates that it can't continue forever. Right. Last time this happened was 2006 and 2007, and we know what happened in 2008. But this was one of those periods uh, during which I wrote uh, my second book called The Arrogance Cycle. Uh, The Arrogance Cycle. Think you can't lose? Think again. And it's just when you're feeling bulletproof that somehow you take it right in the neck. And if you think about 2008, I bet, Mark, you're going to agree with me, but please feel free to disagree. I bet you're going to agree with me that that financial crisis still came out of left field to those of us who were involved intimately in the markets and economy every day. We didn't see the leverage. We saw leverage, but we didn't understand credit default swaps. I didn't know what one was, and it was lurking in the background. I remember learning that a bank had a a billion-dollar sieve special investment, special purpose investment vehicle that was off balance sheet. And I remember thinking, how in the hell does a bank have a billion dollar anything off balance sheet and that, that can go to crap and take the whole bank down? I mean, who's running this popcorn stand anyway? But my point really here, Mark, is that there were we saw the leverage, but we didn't see it coming. And we had no idea of the severity. And the my point there is that next time, whenever this one ends, 
it will likely be something that none of us are seeing or watching or focusing on today. Perfectly said. Uh, and the other part is, Michael, that you know the future issue is seldom exactly like the previous one or two, right? So, yes. uh, so you know, when you hear the concern about, let's say, non-bank financials, what that's a, 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 a quick reference to is basically parts of the financial system that are not heavily regulated and certainly not well understood. Uh, and, and we know that, uh, not unlike the tar pits of Los Angeles that I recently saw where the methane's bubbling up from below the waters or uh, asphalt right. surface, uh, there's always something that's going to bubble up like that. And uh, and we just don't know what it's going to be. doesn't mean it's going to take down the system as it nearly did uh, over a decade ago, but it does mean that there's risk out there. And, and that's, to get back to the survey, we're always trying to figure out what the risks and the opportunities are. And, and that's why you're involved in, in um, an always fascinating pursuit, and that is uh, the opportunities and risks in financial markets. And, and trying to trying to figure them out. We're watching these SPACs, ladies and gentlemen. We're watching a lot of things that we can identify as really looking risky. Uh, and then when you look at all of that stuff, you see other data points like there are $4.6 trillion in money market accounts waiting to earn a higher yield, waiting to step in and buy. Banks, that are returning money to the Federal Reserve because they don't want their capital ratios impaired by having too much cash because they can't lend it out at a higher rate right now. There is a lot of pent up cash, which means purchasing power. We know that the consumer savings rate is very high right now. Consumers are flush with cash. They have a lot of firepower to drive all of these things higher. Where will that money go that will inflate bubbles that will ultimately bring this down. Because I'll tell you one thing for sure, folks, this will come down. We will have a 20 or 30% correction. Why? Because we always do. Markets are cyclical and they go to excess and they correct. Another correction is coming. Like the sunrise and sunset, you can count on it. Uh, but will you be safely positioned and are you taking reasonable amounts of risk for your personal situation? That's what we counsel people to do. And that's what Mark is talking about in the bank rate survey. So you think that the bank rate survey might just be for folks involved with markets. I'm going to tell you, no, I'm going to tell you, everybody should read the bank rate survey. This was a great survey. You will be informed and more educated and you can get it online where, Mark? Well, bankrate.com. And if they want to follow me on Twitter at Hamrickisms, I'm always sort of updating with the latest links to our surveys. Uh, and you can just Google it, uh, Bankrate Market Mavens, and uh, that'll take you right there. And uh, Michael, thank you for the opportunity to highlight what we think is important for, because, you know, a lot of us might be thinking about what we're going to have for dinner or what we're going to stream on television in the next week or so. But we also need to spend some time I'm going to say investing in our personal financial lives because uh, we need to pay for those dinners and those streaming services down the line, whether it's in retirement or a year down the road. A large part of that investment too, Mark, is uh, educating yourself. So, you know, just like you would invest in a college education, invest the time to learn more, to read and understand really what's driving markets and what professionals who have made money a long time doing this are saying about how they've done that and how they're thinking about today. Mark Hamrick uh, is, uh, uh, well, he's, he's really the head Fred, chief economist, uh, uh, senior 
financial editor at bankrate.com, our great friend. Mark, thanks so much for being with us. Michael, my great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another forecast. We thank you for joining us again this week. Here we're coming into the July 4th Independence Day holiday. Don't forget, this is the greatest country in the world. Free market capitalism is the best pro path to prosperity. Never bet against the United States. Celebrate all that is wonderfully American this weekend. And among those things is the ability to create jobs and create wealth and have uh, pursue your great happiness in a free and independent country. So God bless each of you and God bless America. I'll be back next week. In Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, I'm Michael Farr. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of The Farcast, and thanks to Michael's guest, Jim Urio, Dan Mahaffey, and special guest from Bankrate.com, Mark Hamrick. We love hearing from you every week, and we try to respond to all of your notes and suggestions. You can reach us at hjennings at farmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover in coming weeks. The Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only, and it should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed and provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of Farm Miller & Washington, are not necessarily those of Farm Miller & Washington or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help. I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Please share the podcast as we close out our fourth season in coming weeks with a great slate of scheduled guests, including former Richmond Federal Reserve President Dr. Jeffrey Lacker, former Deputy White House Press Secretary Tony Fratto, CNBC and Saturday Partners Jim Labenthal, and fan favorite, Annie Polcari. Go beyond the headlines each week with the forecast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world.